Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. For most of us, Thanksgiving is simply a time to connect with your loved ones you don't see every day. It's the time to put away your daily distractions, sit at a table while sharing memories, food, and laughs. Well, today I want to share the story of a family who didn't make it to the dinner table because one of them was anything but thankful. On November 29th of 1998, the Provosky family was preparing to celebrate a late Thanksgiving with each other in their home located in Muskegon on the coast of Lake Michigan. The Provosky family consisted of 50-year-old Stephen, his wife 49-year-old Linda, and their sons 19-year-old Jedediah and 18-year-old Seth. That day, Jedediah's 19-year-old girlfriend was joining them as well as Stephen's father, 78-year-old John. The youngest member of the family, Seth, had been struggling to have a good relationship with his family since June of that year, and things had finally been coming to a head. Around noon, Seth and Stephen engaged in an argument that ended in Stephen asking Seth to move out before leaving the house to pick up his father, John. While he was away, Seth continued to grow angrier, and he came up with a plan. He went upstairs and grabbed his father's gun. When he returned downstairs, he walked up to his brother, who was watching TV on the couch, and shot him in the back of the head. He then dragged his body into the basement so no one would see him. 30 minutes later, around 1.10 p.m., Stephen returned home with his father, but before they could enter the house, Seth snuck up on them in the garage and shot them both in the back of the head, shooting John twice because the first bullet didn't kill him. He then went back into the house and headed upstairs where his mother had just left the shower and proceeded to shoot her in the back of the head. When he came back downstairs, he was put off by April, his brother's girlfriend, who had just come into the house and entered the kitchen. He shot her in the back of the head as well. Once Seth had killed everyone in the home, he called his close friend Stephen Wallace and asked him to come over and help him clean up, which he did a little after 2 p.m. I don't think I have any friends that would help me clean up a murder. (laughs) Couldn't be me. I'll protect you, but I'm not about to be lollygagging into some uncalled for murders. (laughs) Same. We host a true crime podcast. We aren't looking to become one of our own cases. (laughs) Anyway, this Steve guy actually came and helped clean up the murder. Steven had plans that day, so he couldn't stay long. But when he arrived, he helped Seth wrap the bodies up in sheets before heading to a party thrown by his youth group at 6 p.m. Around 11 p.m., Stephen returned to help Seth continue cleaning up the bodies. But neither of the high school seniors were strong enough to move them they decided the only possible option they had was to stage a robbery. So they began moving furniture and moving stolen items to the car to make it look like things were missing. What they didn't know was April actually had a shift she needed to work that evening, and when she didn't show up, her parents grew concerned. Around 12 a.m. as they were trying to stage the robbery, Julie and Tom Cooper, April's parents, pulled into the driveway. When Stephen and Seth saw them pulling up, they panicked and immediately ran into the woods. When April's parents entered the home, they were met with every parent's worst nightmare and immediately called the police. It didn't take long for them to catch Stephen, who didn't hesitate to surrender. Seth, on the other hand, had made the decision to run and continued to hide until the following morning. Around 7.15 a.m., Seth's classmate Genevieve picked him up when she saw him hitchhiking and took him to his friend Jason Pitt's home. Jason wasn't home, so Seth decided to hide in the pole barn on Jason's property and planned to commit suicide. It didn't take long for the police to figure out where he was and arrest him. 
Jeez, at least he didn't kill April's parents too. I swear this kid didn't think about what was going to happen after he murdered his entire family at all. It clearly wasn't premeditated, but who's to say that this never crossed his mind before? Clearly there's something wrong with him. At least he was caught. On December 1st of 1998, both Seth and Stephen were charged with first-degree murder. Stephen would later have his charges reduced to accessory to murder. Five months later, on May 27th of 1999, Seth was sentenced to five life terms without the possibility of parole after pleading no contest to five counts of first-degree murder. Steph will tell us what happened after Seth and Stephen's arrest after this short break. On Tuesday, December 1st, 1998, at 1.37 p.m., Detective Dennis Edwards asked Seth to explain what led up to the incident. Seth said, and I quote, Okay, me and my dad never really got along the last five or six years, and we'd always argue. Just stupid stuff. And my mom would take his side no matter what. She'd always take his side. It's just been getting worse the past six months. When he talked to me, he just yelled at me, never had anything positive to say to me. I used to be real close to my brother. We used to get along so well. In the past six months to a year, he was beginning to take sides with my parents more. He used to tell me how bad I was doing in school, that I wasn't going to go anywhere in life. And then on Sunday, my parents told me that they didn't love me anymore." End quote. When asked to clarify exactly which parent told him they didn't love him anymore, Seth said, my father. He continued to tell the detectives his father asked him to move out and that he didn't want him there anymore as his brother and mom remained silent. I don't necessarily believe his parents told him that they didn't love him anymore. I think he may have chopped up everything they said to him as that. I wasn't there, but it's not every day a parent straight up says that. I agree. I think they were probably fed up with him and probably told him that he had to move out if he wasn't going to straighten up, but that doesn't mean they didn't love him. So at this point, they're all at fault in his head, though. Of course. Seth continued with his confession, saying, and I quote, Out of anger and rage, I went upstairs in my dad's closet and got his twenty-two caliber pistol, loaded the clip, and went downstairs. But my dad had left. We were supposed to eat dinner at 1.30. This was about a quarter after one. I came up behind my brother. He was sitting in the living room, and I shot him once in the back of the head, and I dragged his body downstairs so no one would see it. And then my dad got home with my grandpa. I didn't know my grandpa was supposed to be there, but when they got in the door, I shot them both in the back of the head. He went on to say, um, My mom was in the shower while this was taking place, and then she had just got out of the shower, and I went upstairs, and I went in the bathroom, and I shot her in the back of the head. And then, when I was coming back downstairs, April came through the front door before I could stop her. And she saw my grandpa and dad, and she thought it was a joke. She walked into the kitchen, and I shot her in the back of the head. I didn't know she was going to come to dinner. End quote. After that, he called up his friend Steve Wallace and told him he had killed his family and to come over. When Steve showed up, he was reluctant to help Seth clean up, but he guilt-tripped him into doing it. He didn't even give these people a chance to fight. He just caught them all off guard. Also, if I were Steve, I would think that my friend might be willing to kill me too. After all, he did just murder his entire immediate family. Who knows what he's capable of? I say this to say, maybe just don't go over there and help him in the first place. Also, he killed April for no reason other than she saw what he had done. Steve was definitely at risk for helping him. 
What did he say happened when Steve showed up? Well, they proceeded to wrap the bodies of his family up in sheets and drag them out into the workshop. Then Seth gave Steve his gun and asked him to get rid of it since he had to leave to get back to his own family, but not before promising Seth that he would come back that night to continue helping him clean up. Seth grabbed some towels and began to soak up the blood, disposing of them in a garbage bag he also stored in the workshop. After doing minimal cleaning, Seth claimed that he could no longer stand to be at his house, so he went over to a friend's house until Steve was ready to come back over. The boys were able to clean up the mess, but the bodies of each family member were too heavy to lift. They only had one option in their minds, make it look like the family was robbed. Seth told the detectives, and I quote, We took all the sheets off them and put them in plastic bags, thinking I'd burn those, put them in the trunk of the car. And we were going to take the TV and VCR and stereo and make it look like somebody just robbed the place. We noticed a car pull up, so I quickly ran out and shut the trunk and ran back inside, and we went out the slider door. And we were looking out through the back garage door just to see who it was, and I thought it was a cop, so we both ran. We ran across the empty lot next door, and we waited a couple minutes, and then I decided to go back and check to make sure it was a cop, end quote. Well, shout out to April's parents for not waiting too long and heading over there. Absolutely. I don't think Seth and Steve were smart enough to actually get away with covering up the murder either way, though. It could have been so dangerous for them, though. He could have hurt them just like he did their daughter. He totally could have. In fact, Seth hid in the bushes until he saw police dogs. He knew he was in deep trouble and started running through the woods heading west. He ended up sleeping under a pine tree until the next morning. When he woke up, he figured the cops were no longer on to him and headed to his friend Jason's home to commit suicide, but was apprehended by the police as he waited for Jason to get home and let him in. According to Seth, the whole thing was unplanned and he felt awful. I truly believe, though, if you feel as bad as you say you do for killing or assaulting somebody, you need to give them justice by suffering the consequences. In no way does that include removing yourself completely. If he felt so bad, why did he keep killing people after the first one? I don't know if I believe that he feels bad for what he did or if he just feels sad that he got caught. I definitely think he felt bad for being caught. (laughs) Where is everyone now, though? Almost one year later, on November 1st, 1999, Steve was acquitted by a jury for his role in the murders. However, that would not be the end of Steve. On October 30th, 2007, he was sentenced to prison for 28 months for violating his parole. He continued to go down a path of criminal activity, ranging from domestic violence, vandalism, resisting, and obstructing police in his early to mid-20s. On July 15, 2010, Seth and two other inmates, who were also serving life sentences for murder, managed to overpower the driver of a semi-truck at the Kinross Correctional Facility. This was all in an attempt to escape prison. Their plan was to drive through the double fence. The guards from the prison quickly apprehended the two inmates, and while doing so, Seth fled from the truck but was shot by a guard, resulting in his death. There have been things said in regard to this case from people who knew the Provosky family that may or may not be reliable. For example, a family friend shared with police that Stephen believed his son didn't have a conscience. He said that Seth was out of control and had anger issues. In 2007, Seth converted to Christianity and wrote a letter stating he was coming down on LSD that day, but police disagreed and were skeptical that drugs played any part in the slaying at all. 
He would go on to write in his testimonial letter, quote, My parents raised me with an atheistic or agnostic view of life. I never had a lot of friends and was antisocial as early as grade school. I was considered a troublemaker and often found myself in the principal's office, end quote. Well, you know, the first thing we all think about is slaying our loved ones when we get in trouble at school, right? <laughs> right. None of that is a reason to kill your family. Come on. No argument should ever result in a life being taken. Guns have taken far too many lives in this country, and stories like these make you realize just how much power they hold in the wrong hands. What should have been a family dinner filled with joy, laughter, and full bellies turned into an entire family having their lives taken from them without a fighting chance. This Thanksgiving, be grateful for your loved ones, and remember when you're sitting around the table how many families will never get the chance to do so. The epidemic of gun violence in America has left thousands dead and countless others with trauma in the aftermath of shootings. If you're struggling, you're not alone. There's help for victims and survivors of gun violence. Gun Violence Survivors Foundation places an emphasis on the various needs and challenges that individual survivors of gun violence encounter. Their goal is to engage and empower survivors of gun violence in America. 100% of funds raised by a survivor's campaign support their specific needs, which allows you to watch the direct impact your donations made in the victim's life. To learn more, go visit gvsfoundation.org. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandcontra.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Shan. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Contra Podcast for our question of the week. Sham, what's our bonus conjure tip? One way to celebrate Thanksgiving this year is decorating your altar space. You can pick out which decor that honors our ancestors and deities. Next time you're on a walk, pick up some fall-colored leaves or pick up some pumpkins and squash to place there and give some pops of color. Acorns, pine cones, woodland animals, anything fall-like would look wonderful on your Thanksgiving altar. Finally, take a piece of paper and write down some things you're thankful for before folding it up and leaving it there. Every time you go back to your altar, you have something positive to meditate on. I love that. You can even leave a little plate of food on the altar during your Thanksgiving dinner to include your ancestors in the celebration. We'll be back on Christmas Day with another bonus episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.